Welcome back to the Perfect Perception Podcast. I am so excited about this week's topic, and it's on what is thought. And if you know me, you know I love questions like this. And it's such a hot topic lately with what has been going on with AI. And as we, as a human species, are pondering what elements of human thought and consciousness can we replicate and put into something like AI. And this expressed thought experiment also seems to allow us to ponder and process what elements of this do we not have a clear understanding of. When we look through the lens of what can be phenomenally understood about thought through our personal experience, thought is something we can tune our awareness to in order to develop our opinion of what it is we are perceiving. But thoughts are not something we create. Once they are there, we can bring awareness to them, but there is an automatic element of thought. Therefore, it's another tool of our perception, just like our five senses. Thought is like a data barf that pops up as we interact in certain scenarios. For example, as a snake walks across my path, (laughs) my brain and nervous system are having a conversation And for me, the experience is fearful and my thoughts are saying, get out of Dodge. (laughs) And I don't necessarily have free will over that experience in that moment. However, because I can bring awareness to the fact that when a snake graces my presence, I experience this fear and this thought that I want to get the heck out of there, I could make a decision to impact change for myself. For example, I could go through exposure therapy to lessen that reaction that happens when I am in proximity of a snake. Thought exists upon a habitual plane of behavior based upon how we have navigated similar circumstances or information in our past. Okay, I also wanted to look at how the dictionary defines thought. So thought is defined as an idea or opinion produced by thinking or occurring suddenly in the mind. Okay, (laughs) I am not satisfied that they used thinking in the definition of thought. So let's look up thinking. Thinking is defined as the process of using one's mind to consider or reason about something. Okay, so let's do one more. What is the definition of consider? And consider is to think carefully about something. All right, that was less than satisfactory. Apparently, the dictionary has difficulty in communicating what thought is as well. That's okay, because we can use root cause analysis to ponder what what it is based on our personal experience. When a thought comes to mind, it can only do so because it's something we have already learned or become aware of. Something that we have not learned cannot just pop into our mind. For a brief example, if I am observing a green pen, some distinctions I might make about it are its color, green, which I would have learned in preschool, As I observed that sensory phenomena, I was taught to label what I was seeing as green. I also would make the distinction that it is a writing utensil. 
These are impressions that find their root centuries in our past from whenever the collective of humanity made an agreement that the observation of that shade on the color spectrum shall be called green and that we will label a tool that we put in our hand and make marks upon a surface will be called a pen. Now, I could synthesize additional information and make other observations about that green pen with my creative mind. I could observe the form and change its function. It could become a building block in the creation of the walls of a dollhouse or an imagined fire pit that I'm using to role play with dolls. However, each of those creative functions are synthesized also based upon a gathering of past information of things that exist in my awareness up until that point, a house and a fire pit. Another way we could observe thought is through multiple perspectives based upon species differentiation. As humans, we commonly understand five senses as a basis for our observations of the world around us. However, these senses vary dependent upon species. If I were able to have a back and forth conversation with my dog, the perception in their awareness may label that same object, that green pen, a chew toy, or perhaps it wouldn't even be a definition in our conversation and merely a statement of want to chew now (laughs) or something of that nature. Due to the visible light spectrum of my dog, it likely wouldn't even perceive the color of that object the same as me because a dog doesn't have as many cones in their eye as a human in order to pick up that frequency band of light like we can. This simple analysis is one that opens the door in my mind to just how much our thought creates our reality. It also brings awareness to the fact that we do not have to define our existence based upon our thoughts. Just because certain things become habitual based upon learned information doesn't mean that information throughout time will be of our best and highest good. In order to ponder this, let's look at thought and its integration with emotion. If throughout our day, the thoughts that are popping into mind are ones that are degrading, negative, and unsupportive of feeling well, We can become aware of those thoughts as merely an old programmed pattern based in habit. Each time a negative thought pops up, we can take action to create another thought that better serves an outlook of positivity in our given environment in order to proceed through the day with better self-acceptance and inner grace. Essentially, these thought patterns originated in order to inform us in a way that keeps us safe. But as our environment shifted from one where we more frequently needed to be attentive to threats of survival to now, those same thought patterns only work in opposition of our best nature. It could prevent us from taking healthy risks and from utilizing our creativity in ways that bring joy to the self and to others. While it may seem simpler to compare this idea to events in our distant past in order to highlight the idea that our thoughts are not always in our best interest 
it becomes more complicated with all of the deeper intricacies of our mind when interplaying the idea alongside things such as social and cultural norms, familial upbringing, and ideas of morality, it becomes a little bit more difficult to determine whether or not these things are working in our best interest or not. An example that comes to the top of my head is analyzing this idea with being humble. It's something that I've been pondering a lot lately because I think many of us were taught the value of being humble, but the very way we were taught to engage with that value could have been limiting. For example, if you were taught to be humble as to not appear braggy or to dim your light or your potential to not make others feel bad, well, that's a skewed perception in itself. But I think it's one many of us experienced. Functioning at your fullest potential should never be something you should fear others to be jealous of. And it's not something one should see as boastful. It is self-deprecating to play small and not utilize all of your innate gifts to their fullest potential. As I began to dig deeper into this topic of what is thought, I began to make connections in my own mind about how our very curiosity on the nature of thought finds a common root in how thought interplays with our perception of our environment and how that impacts our emotions or our nervous system and our mental and physical health. This has me wondering, is there a sense that if we discover what it is, what thought is in its fundamental nature, then we will be able to engineer it in a way to reduce human suffering? Essentially, I'm asking, what is our motive in seeking upon this question? Is it to merely acquire some correctness, to prove something, to fuel the ego, to position a new philosophy, or acquire fame? And at the core, I really, I don't believe so. Okay, let's look at thought and its relation to suffering and suffering as a means of seeking. If a human was not experiencing suffering, would there be such seeking? When we feel well, is our mind being boggled with, what is this? What is that? Give me that label or that definition. Or if we're not in that realm, is our brain simply experiencing joy in the moment? Take a moment to ponder times in your life when you are experiencing a sense of joy or well-being. For example, maybe you're on a roller coaster at a theme park or even celebrating your grandma's 75th birthday with your family. How frequent in those moments is your mind frolicking in philosophical thought or chicken in the egg type phenomenal questions? We are at a state of such comfortability in society today It's something that we have not achieved up until this point. We are not being chased by a tiger and we don't have to go out into the woods to score our next meal if we don't want to. It is because of this achievement that our struggle has moved out of the plane of physicality and one that terrorizes us almost psychologically from physical struggle to struggle in the mind. If we did not have food, our primary goal would be to overcome that challenge. And all of our focus would be to meet the very need of survival. 
there is a sense of achievement we experience from overcoming that struggle. As we acquire comfort in that realm, in that sense, we must understand how to engineer the mechanics of the human machine to work in our favor because we are no longer faced with feats of necessity, but the playing field has spanned to one that is influenced by our personal values. Is starting my business an achievement that would bring me the same amount of fulfillment as acquiring food for me and my family for dinner? Let me say that again. We are no longer faced with feats of necessity, but the playing field has spanned to one that is influenced by our personal values. Is this job, this career, this undertaking going to check that same box of fulfillment in the same way as meeting our very essential needs to survive? Okay, now let's say I am in a state of doubt about starting that business being that correct next step for me or taking that job being the next correct step for me. This is kind of when human self-awareness puts a wrench (laughs) in this whole process as well. So how does that influence the amount of joy I receive during completion? Acquiring a food is a matter of necessity where acquiring the business is a matter of my best ability to know what will bring me fulfillment. Those are very different things. It's almost like immediately I know that getting the food will bring fulfillment because my belly is full and it is just known. It is a truth. But how well do I know what it is that my desires are in life and whether or not going towards that undertaking will end up bringing me fulfillment? And how long am I on that pathway towards fulfillment before I get to the end? And what if I'm wasting all of my time trying? Self-doubt is a branch that extends from our human ability to become aware of our shortcomings, which therefore lessens our confidence. How confident are we that we understand the human mechanism well enough that we know what will put it on a a trajectory of happiness? Okay, let's ponder another dog example. Because I am self-aware, thoughts of self-doubt can creep into my mind. But let's say I let my dog out to go to the bathroom and he spots a rabbit. Immediately, he is running balls to the wall at that thing as if he is 1,000% sure he is going to catch it. I have watched him do this like 72 times and he has yet to catch it. But his self-confidence is unwavering. Each attempt to capture that rabbit is the same as the prior. This whole concept is quite interesting to me because the human species often acts as if we run this world with our evolved thinking and language. But it's also our very thinking and language that sabotage our existence. Okay, let's take a look at how greed enters our thought process and how it interplays with human evolution. So picture this, our ancient ancestors roaming the savannah, trying to survive and thrive. Now we all know a bit of self-interest is wired into us. It's like the survival instinct sidekick, but what about greed? How does that fit into the grand scheme of human evolution? First things first, let's distinguish between self-interest and greed. Self-interest, in a way, 
is kind of like looking out for number one, ensuring your own well-being and that of your immediate circle. It's that basic survival mode. Now, greed takes it up a notch. It's that insatiable desire for more, even when you've got plenty. Now, here's where it gets intriguing. Evolutionary psychologists suggest that a bit of self-interest was probably beneficial in the survival game. You gather resources, ensure your genes make it to the next generation, the basics. But greed, that's like the wild card. How does an intense desire for more, more, more play into our evolutionary story? Some argue that a touch of greed might have pushed our ancestors to explore new territories, seek out better resources, and innovate. It's like a double-edged sword. Too much, and it could lead to conflict and social issues, but a dash (laughs) might have been just the spark for progress. Think about it. Those who were a bit more driven to accumulate resources might have had a leg up in harsh environments. It's like an ancient version of keeping up with the Joneses, if the Joneses were rival tribes or competing for the same food source. In the end, the psychological implications of greed on human evolution are a complex mix of survival strategy, competition, and maybe even a bit of social tension. It's like our brains had to find a balance between looking out for ourselves and navigating the social landscape. And here we are today, still trying to untangle the threads of self-interest and greed that have woven their way through the tapestry of our evolution. I wanted to see if I could find earlier records of documenting greed. And in Native American culture, the manifestation of need of excess and greed was personified by a character referred to as Watiko, which was described as a cannibalistic spirit that can take over people's minds, leading to selfishness, insatiable greed, and consumption as an end in itself, destructively turning our intrinsic creative genius against our own humanity. When we look into the research about how our thoughts impact our chemistry and our nervous system, it makes sense that this awareness would be personified as a cannibal. The more frequently that our thought patterns function in ways that are not for our best and highest good, it influences various areas in our biology that will result in degradation of the body and the mind. Too often we are seeking outside of us for what is within which in itself is a matter of perception if all needs of basic survival are met. Religion, in this sense, has done us a great disservice. Instead of taking responsibility for our perceived shortcomings or suffering, we find a means to blame that guy or external circumstances for something that we should be empowering ourselves to overcome. Or we get to thank that guy for overcoming the challenge. There is no sense of personal achievement under the umbrella of religion. That in itself has an impact on our psychological development. Our very own perception of whether we think we can or cannot achieve, that is what drives that potential outcome. Perhaps Religion is a good lens for people that have 
low self-confidence or low belief in self, that I guess maybe it necessitates a belief outside of self to achieve that same feat. Because I guess if they internally cannot experience a self a, a self belief, what's the second best option? You know, let's look at this through another lens. In the West, if I find myself labeled as mentally ill and am graced with the label of damaged or inadequate, what is it that I am likely to believe about myself? Am I going to find ways to overcome my misery or will I soak in the pool of my own sorrow? Will I seek out experiences and opportunities that influence my well-being or will I expect or even demand a handout for my shortcomings? Once that becomes a collectively held belief, it almost becomes the expectation What is the future for humanity if we are paving our very path downward into a grave or waiting to live or have joy until after we die? This all honestly has me starting to wonder if the difficulties in the economy and the increase in prices at the grocery store are a hidden blessing. If I can find joy in providing a meal for my family, perhaps I won't need to torture myself in finding joy elsewhere, though That only seems to be effective if we aren't already working on a pattern of greed or neuroticism that tells us that achieving that task should be easy already. And now because it's not, I perceive myself as quote unquote less than I was maybe even three years ago when grocery prices weren't as high. It's a matter of perception though. Greed has always been a challenge for humanity. How much more do we need than what is necessary to survive? How much do we seek enjoyment through one-upping the Joneses? If we follow that pathway, it is a never-ending hill to climb. At what point would we acknowledge what is enough? Instead of overcoming the challenge of necessity, we are now faced with overcoming the mind. I want to span out for a bit and ponder this through a macro perspective. In the big scheme of things, we are merely like a speck of sand. I would like to do a little thought experiment in order to ponder some of these themes of our existence in relation to the whole. Let's imagine that humans are like the neurons of the planet Earth. Our interconnectedness acts as electrical impulses firing through Earth's nervous system. As the neurons of this planetary brain, we are the curious entities, the seekers of knowledge and innovation, while Earth, the grand cerebral entity, processes and saves our collective experiences. So if we look at this through the lens that we are the neurons Essentially, we are like the thoughts of the planet Earth. And just as in our individual experience, we want our brain to be functioning at its highest potential. We want our neurons to be firing like healthily. And we want to be making more synaptic connections in our brain so that we can utilize a higher portion of our brain than what we're using already. So if we're looking at this as if the humans are the neurons of the brain, we want all of the other people, quote unquote, neurons, 
to function and to function healthily. So what makes our selves, our neuron self, fire? Like what propels us forward? What used to propel us forward and what caused us to seek was that of a basic human need to acquire food, shelter, water, etc. We would work together while playing individual roles as a means to accomplish a collective goal. As humanity has reached a point of comfortability in terms of basic human needs, now our seeking and innovation is on the plane of the mind as opposed to physicality or the body. In this example, I also see this as we are shifting from acting out of instinct or unconscious to one of consciousness or sentience. So in this thought experiment, it's like the earth itself is becoming conscious or sentient. Now, what would make, uh, like, what would prevent us from acting or firing as a neuron? What would prevent us from forward moving progress? I intuit this as anything that may lower our drive, our, our very life force, our prana, our chi, it, anything that could lower our drive or our self-confidence. If we become too bogged down by what other people think, it can prevent us from taking steps forward. In that sense, collective morality isn't as important as following our integral values. And (laughs) I can already sense that where I'm going with this is going to get a little bit rough around the edges, but I hope you can stick with me. I think this thought experiment is a good way to ponder this. So just... As we have neurons firing in our brain, we want all of our neurons to to fire healthily and we want them to connect and we want the synapses to fire. And so if we're looking at this in the sense that humans are like the neurons of the earth, we don't want any of them to die. We don't want any of them unhealthy. We want them firing successfully, moving forward. So do we even need to necessarily engage with thoughts of morality because morality is getting us stuck? So, okay, this gets me back to this Jesus idea. And I think our existence would be a lot different if we looked at Jesus through this lens. This is how I perceive it. And anytime I have conversations with people where they're telling me different, that's where I'm, I start to get confused where they're like, no, Jesus is very judgmental and he doesn't like this and he likes this. Or... Even if it's not us perceiving Jesus, if it's just a human, if if there was a human on the planet that just looked out and said, hey, as long as you're not killing anyone and you're not hindering anyone else's growth and you're focused on your potential, your forward moving progress, good for you. Like, let's not be so worried about what everyone else is doing. Let's worry about ourselves first because none of us are perfect here. <laughs> we're all perfecting our perception and we're all perfecting our existence. So who am I to judge Bob or Joe when I'm not perfect myself? So when we're making decisions, okay, let's look at it with this example, sexuality. People are making decisions that are in their best interest for themselves. Why do we care what they're doing? It's allowing them to have forward moving progress. They're living a happy life so that they can show up and be the best selves they can be for everyone else in their environment. The only thing that 
muddies that up or messes that up is if we place morality and judgment over it and say, well, you can do this, but not that. And this is okay, but not that. That only essentially any collective belief that we have concluded based on any religious text is still a human construct based on perception. When you look into quantum physics, really none of this is real. We just have truth within our individual experience. Actually, if people were to break down our language etymology, we would see that mother or matricy breaks down to matrix and paternal, aka father, is pattern. Uh, but that's a conversation for another day. All right, if we hop back on track. So if we all perceived ourselves as neurons of the planet Earth, we want all neurons to be functioning healthily. Everything else that breaks down into the human personification of our reality is all muddied up with judgment and perception. None of that really matters. As long as they're doing the best thing for themselves, they're not harming another neuron, we're not harming the planet Earth that creates us, our body is made up of the elements of the Earth, and we as humans cannot recreate water, we cannot recreate soil, as long as we're focusing on keeping our very entity that we exist upon, that we are part of, the Earth, healthy, and we're keeping each other healthy by not harming each other, I don't know how much of this morality judgment type conversation we really need to get into because at the end of the day, it plays a role in keeping us frozen and making us doubt ourselves. Um, is it okay that I date this person that's 10 years older than me? Or is it okay that I assert my, my masculine side in the workplace? All of these things, they're all human perception constructs that muddy up our ability to listen to our own intuition and move forward. Inside, we know what is best for us because it's marked by our nervous system flooding euphoria and bliss into our experience. Like if you're excited about it, that's your body giving you that clue or that cue that, hey, this is for you because you're excited about it and your body is telling you so. Shut your brain off. Don't think about it because you're not even creating your own thoughts. You're just getting muddied up to what comes to the forefront based on your patterned existence. So if you were brought up that it's not okay to be confident, then if thoughts of confidence come up, even though you're excited, you might start to feel guilty about that. Like, um, yeah, I'm not really supposed to be confident. I'm supposed to be humble, you know, and this goes on and on and on. Criticism of self or others is seemingly an expression of marked differences. It's difficult to relate when experiences are different. And so often anyways, it seems like the result is a projection of judgment. However, if we started to celebrate differences, which is where I think we are, we are moving culturally, we will have a more harmonious, unified experience that is marked with individuality but not uniformity. Many of our cultures have projected out systems of uniformity because it's a simpler form to analyze. But it's not our nature. The chokehold has formed too tightly 
inhibiting our individual expression. It's not necessary that we become replications of each other in order to function harmoniously. We just need to understand the loose framework with which we can all function upon. Back to the thought experiment analogy, if there are only certain neurons and pathways that are firing, then we would be having the same kind of thoughts day after day. In our micro-human experience, there is a lot of truth to that. Each day can start to feel like the previous because we are habitually going through the same motions and having same or similar thoughts in relation to those experiences. If we want to experience nuance and change and evolution, we have to be willing to take that path less traveled and navigate the dark forest with a flashlight. The more often we do that, the clearer the path will become and we will be open to new opportunities in our lives. At the end of the day, when looking into thought and what is thought, what I really hope to highlight is how thought is habitual. Thought can work in our favor or against us, individually and collectively. Because as humans, we can become self-aware of our thoughts, we can start to take note of where our thinking results in us feeling good, promoting growth and wellness, and where it is more self-deprecating. In order to shift our thinking, we need to become aware of the places in which it is harming us, where it is preventing us from taking action. At the end of the day, each of us is unique with our own dreams, desires, and motivators. We are all on this journey together, perfecting our perception and working to identify what that balance looks like within our own self. No one knows you better than you. Let's continue to work towards a framework that supports us all as unique individuals on our path of discovery. Let's discover unanimity, not uniformity. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you all have a wonderful week. Oh, my God.